0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number eight of the Anno Domini podcast, a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of the church calendar year. We'll discover how this calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. Welcome back. My name is Joe Stout, and the last few weeks have been extremely eventful in the Stout household. We welcomed with joy, just a couple weeks ago, the birth of our fifth daughter, Ruthie Jane. She is an absolute joy and delight to have in the household, I can tell you that. And both Elizabeth, my wife, and baby Ruthie are doing wonderfully well. God be praised. We are so thankful for her presence, and the four, her four sisters and her three brothers are absolutely in awe that God brought this little girl into the world. So it's been a little over seven weeks since our last podcast, and in that episode, the last one, I introduced the season of Epiphany, in which we celebrate the manifestation, or the revealing, of Christ to the world. He's revealed on Epiphany to the Magi. He's revealed to the world through his public baptism, revealed at the temple to Simeon, revealed to his inner circle on the mountain through his transfiguration, and finally, his manifestation culminates as Christ goes into the desert and reveals himself to Satan, where he does battle for 40 days. With Christ entering the desert for those 40 days of temptation, we will transition from our celebration of his epiphany into the celebration of Lent. As the days lengthen and spring approaches, we will daily be reminded that Easter is on the move and the days of the power of sin over God's people has ended. This season begins with Ash Wednesday and it culminates with the salvation of the world. As a quick reminder, on the Anno Domini podcast, we generally have four different segments. We start with the practical ways of celebrating a holiday or perhaps a season of time. We then examine the biblical rationale for the holiday, generally as it's found in the lectionary, some of the biblical passages that are used to uh, kind of give credence to the holiday. Then we'll look at how the holiday or the season of time has been celebrated in the history of the church. And then finally, we finish with a hymn or a psalm of music that we'll examine together, we'll listen together, and we'll ask ourselves, how does this holiday, how do these biblical passages, um, how does the history that the church has uh, celebrated this holiday in, how does this hymn or this psalm, how does it actually change us? Because as people, we want to heed the warning of James. We don't want to come to the Word of God see how God's people have interpreted and lived by that word of God, and go away and forget what we look like and forget what we're supposed to do, which is to always be coming more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our elder brother. So let's get started. Starting with the practical side, In the Stout House, we have never observed Lent or Ash Wednesday, for that matter. This is due really to a combination of reasons, but the biggest one is that observing this time wasn't a part of either of our family's upbringing. We tend to emulate the way we were raised, and that is a design feature. It's not a bug. Kids turning out like their parents is how God made the world. It shouldn't surprise us when it happens, and Personally, this is an area of huge blessing for both Elizabeth and I because we both had and still have righteous parents who raised us in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In fact, in many cases, we also had righteous grandparents going back several generations, and so we ought to go in the ways of our father when our fathers go in the ways of the Lord. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that G.K. Chesterton observed once is he, he observed, quote, "...these are the days when the Christian is expected to praise every creed except his own." Close quote. Christians really shouldn't fall into this temptation. The idea of, you know, praising everyone's creed except their own or feeling a sense of guilt or shame about their own history or their own spiritual heritage in fact, we ought to feel a deep comfort in following the paths our fathers have laid for us, provided, of course, that these paths were honoring to God's law. So I say all of that as kind of a preface uh, because I really want to want you guys to know that I have no paths to follow on this one. I have no prior experience to hearken back to. And and there's some benefits to that, and there's some, you know, there's some negatives. On the plus side. Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent—they have no sentimental or nostalgic value for me, or for my wife. And and the problem with sentimentalism and nostalgia is that sometimes you can end up doing things just for the sentimental sake, uh, for the nostalgic value of it, and that can kind of, at least, it can have the temptation of clouding God's voice. So really, not having any sentimental or nostalgic value built into Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent, could be seen as a positive thing. Nothing wrong with sentimentalism or nostalgia, but it can be a problem. Uh, However, on the negative side, uh, because this was not a part of our upbringing, uh, we have none of the familiarities that, for many Christians, uh, they've kind of come to expect And that familiarity of of growing up with something kind of naturally holds you accountable to it. So we celebrate Advent fairly easily because that was something that uh, we both celebrated growing up. And so not celebrating it is more of an act of celebrating it. If you are going to not celebrate Christmas, you're going to have to go out of your way not to celebrate Christmas because that's what you've always done. But to start celebrating something that you've never celebrated before, there's a little bit more of finesse to that. So with that in mind, what should a Christian do during Ash Wednesday and during the season of Lent? What's expected of them? Well, really, to answer that question and and to answer what we're going to be doing as a family, we need to take a look at the historical practice of the church and then answer that question. Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent precedes Easter by 40 days. As we stated earlier in the Gospel, Jesus fasts and does battle with Satan for 40 days in the desert. Now, 40 days is a common number in Scripture, and it indicates a period of fullness or a complete cycle of time. That number 40 does 40 years in the desert. 40 days fasting in the wilderness, those kinds of things. And because the time of Lent precedes the victory of Christ on the cross, we know that the suffering Christ experienced in the desert led ultimately to his glorification. So just as God's promise to us is that if we humble ourselves, he will lift lift us up. So Jesus was tempted for 40 days and, and beyond that, and was humbled to the point of death on a cross or a cursed tree and during all of this faithfully obeyed his father in heaven so because he was faithful in all of this god raised him up to glory and christ calls us to follow the same path now that's the pretext for why it's lent is 40 days but if you check the math you'll see that Wednesday, February 26th of 2020, is actually 46 days before Easter, which falls on April 12th. So, this may seem on the surface as an inconsistency, but it's actually proof of a point I've tried to make every episode thus far on the Anno Domini podcast, and that is this. The church calendar is not a binding requirement for Christians. However, The Lord's Day each week is the one day that Christians are bound to observe. It is literally one of the Ten Commandments, so ignoring it is not an option. Therefore, the 40 days of Lent don't include Sundays, since those Sundays are the Lord's days and are always, and I do mean always, a day of feasting, celebrating, and joyfully giving God glory by setting the day aside for Him. So when we think about the 40 days of Lent, we are not including the Lord's days in that because uh, the Lord's day is not a day of penance. And so if we're in a season of penance, and I will define what that word penance means in a moment, then whatever uh, that, the discipline of penance that we're doing, uh, we set that aside on the Lord's day to give him the glory do him by feasting. So bottom line is the Lord's Day is not a day for fasting, and the 40 days leading up to Easter does not include Sundays. So what is Lent, and more specifically, what is Ash Wednesday? Well, Lent comes from the Middle English word Lent with an E at the end, which simply means spring. Uh, It also has roots from the Old English word Lenten. It actually has a G in it, L-E-N-G, T-E-N, which means to lengthen, referring to the lengthening of days leading up to spring, and of course, Easter morning, the point of spring. Uh, Lent is similar to Advent in that during Lent, we are anticipating something coming that is well worth the wait. And just like in Advent, we patiently and eagerly anticipate the coming of the Messiah. During Lent, we are anticipating and in, in waiting on the victory of Christ over sin, the devil, and death itself. And so Lent is has some similarities to Advent, and in fact, both Lent and Advent uh, at one point were both considered penitential seasons. Advent, of course, now is no longer that, um, but uh, penitential meaning it's a time of, uh, oftentimes it's a time seen with fasting and whatnot. Um, But Lent is similar to Advent, it's a similar time of anticipating something coming that is well worth the wait. And Ash Wednesday specifically has historically been the day that Christians get an ashen cross drawn on their foreheads, and this is to remind them of that primeval curse pronounced at, at the fall of man, that dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You see, we are mortal, and the dust or the ashes signify this. You know Abraham seems to understand this truth when he's speaking to God in Genesis 18, uh, 18 verse 27, because he says this to God, He says, uh, "Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes." So he has the right mentality of his own mortality. He knows that he's nothing but dust and ashes. And God certainly knows this, too. Um, You know, not only seeing that he formed man from the dust of the ground, he obviously knows it since he breathed life into this dust. And this dust uh, had a name and and, uh, the human race was redeemed by Christ because of this dust that God made. So, of course, he knows that we are dust. But he promises in Psalm 103 that he hasn't forgotten this fact. It says in Psalm 103 verses 14 says, for he knows our frame, he is mindful that we are dust. So the point of Ash Wednesday is to remind us that we are as frail as dust. We are as um, lasting as the morning dew. And it's not, as a quick aside here, it's not that man is as lowly as dirt, you know, nothing more than a worm. It's 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 not that. It's not self-hatred. Uh, it's just that we're being reminded of the fact that the same thing that James tells us in, in the uh, in the epistle of, of James in chapter four verse fourteen he he asks and answers a question he says what is your life, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So this is the point of Ash Wednesday. It's to set the tone for the weeks to follow, which is that of penance. Now, what do I mean by penance? Uh, this is important to find because in the Catholic Church. Penance is actually considered an actual sacrament, and it's one of the chief ways, I believe, in which Catholics wrongly follow a path uh, that really leads towards self-justification or an attempt at self-justification. Uh, basically, the thinking goes, if I do enough penance, I will be worthy Worthy eventually. And, and, you know, as Protestants, we know this is totally anti-gospel. We are not penitent so that we can become worthy, We are penitent because we've been made worthy, not by our own works so that any man can boast, but by the gift of God or by the blood of Christ. And really, if that's the reality, that we are penitent because we've been made worthy, our only logical response to this kindness of God is a spirit of penance. And I, I like the way Noah Webster defines penance in his 1828 Dictionary. He just simply defines it as repentance. And that's really, when I say penance, I think of the the mindset of repentance. And really, Lent ought to be a season, and not the only time. It shouldn't certainly not be the only time. But it ought to be a season in which we can take careful notice of the gargantuan gulf separating sinful man from the Holy God. You know, Christians often, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, they'll minimize this distance between the holiness of God and the lowliness of our own spiritual state. But our natural spiritual state is antithetical to the station of God in heaven. So, without the blood of Christ making us worthy, no amount of penance could ever be enough to bridge the gulf. It's it's, in fact, laughable to think that you can do enough good deeds to make yourself worthy for heaven. You know, we are helpless and dead in our sin, and, the, and only the empowering work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel can change this. Therefore, during the time of Lent, we should use it as an opportunity to pay careful attention to this empowering work of the Spirit. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament comes from Ezekiel 37 and the Lord tells uh, the prophet Ezekiel, he says to preach the gospel to a an entire valley that is filled with dry bones. you know when I think about this um, I think about uh, I, I think about a valley that is just a, a mess of bones inter- interchange just a pile of dry dusty bones And the Lord tells the prophet to preach the gospel to this valley of dry bones and when he does, flesh and breath enters the bones and they are seen they are raised up to be seen as a great army and this really is a picture of the gospel because that valley of dry bones there was no amount of penance that those dry bones could do to get the flesh and breath back into them it just it's laughable to think about because they were nothing but a pile of dry bones and so the breath of life entering and bringing life to a corpse so dead that all that is left is a heap of dry bones, that's a picture of the gospel. And so during Lent, we're reminded of our need to examine ourselves in the light of the gospel. You know, what patterns in our life are inconsistent with a life of victory over sin? Let's figure those things out, and when we find them, let's chuck them out, repent of them. So here's here's a little list I came came up with. It's not a it's not a it's not like a checklist really, but it's some practical things you can do during Lent. Um, one of them it's it's really in no particular order, but one of them is to devote your time to others, give to those who cannot repay, and and not necessarily just money, because money is very convenient to give people. You can kind of pay them. You can kind of not pay them, but you can, you know, give them money, and then all of a sudden your conscience feels good about that, like you've done something. But give to those who cannot repay of your time. So visit nursing homes, the sick, or shut-ins. This is something that oftentimes I'll have the best intentions of, but my actual application of it is lacking in accountability. That's something I want to change. So devote your time to others. Um, Another one Pray for the Spirit to reveal hidden sins, and then confess those sins to God, remembering that He's faithful to forgive them. And, you know, I think we oftentimes look at sins as being like, you know, the big, hairy sins that, uh, that, that ruin lives, and, and of course, those things are always possibilities, and we just, just you know, if, if it could happen to, the, to David, the man after God's, God's own heart, it can happen to us, but part of growing in maturity is realizing that there is all kinds of sins that are offensive to God's holiness that we might not even realize we're committing. And so asking the Spirit to reveal these things to us, and then when He does reveal them to, to them, to those sins to us, no matter how uncomfortable they are, repenting of them. And, and just a quick side note on that, remember that repentance and self-hatred, are at odds with one another. See, we're made in God's image, and only Satan hates that. We never should. We can face our sin and repent of it without self-loathing, because Jesus paid for those sins. No matter how self-loathing those sins might tempt us to be, Jesus, for those people that he calls his own, he paid for those. The worst of the worst sins were were accounted to him. They were accounted to him. And so we don't have to have any kind of self-loathing. So pray for the Spirit to reveal hidden sins. Uh, Another one, of course, this is what Lent is known for, is fasting from food. And, you know, this is one of those things where I think Lent can kind of, maybe rightfully so, be kind of dismissed out of hand by a lot of evangelicals, because it seems super like silly, like I'm gonna give up bubblegum for for Lent, something that doesn't really matter. Uh, so fasting from food, I think could be is, a, is an excellent way of, of, of taking using your time during Lent, but maybe not just one or two things, but actually experiencing times of actual fasting or, or famine. You know, fasting works like a spiritual alarm clock and it protects you from some of the complacency, that a full belly can bring. A full belly is a gift from God, and I'm not, I'm not um, trying to be some type of Gnostic saying that food is physical and physical things are bad. No, f- physical things are wonderful, but fasting or a time of discipline uh, around food work, can really work like a spiritual alarm clock. Every time you think about food, that can be your reminder, it's time to pray. Prayer and fasting go hand in hand. And, and so this, the next part on the list here goes with that, which is devote yourself with others to times of prayer for specific requests. And you can mark those times by fasting from food. Um, and of course, never on the Lord's Day. We don't fast on the Lord's Day. But devoting yourself with others to these times of prayer and fasting can be extremely encouraging and unifying to the body. Uh, of Christ. And so that leads me into the last practical tip I have, which is to seek community and unity with that community during this time. You know, personal times of devotion to God are important. But we are the one bride of Christ. The the the, the body of Christ is not made up of little individuals doing their own thing. We're all part of one body. And think about it this way. At the end of all things, When Christ has brought in his entire bride and we're sitting down to the table of the Supper of the Lamb, the feast to end all feasts, the feast at the end of history and the beginning of eternity, there will not be one empty seat at that table. We will be one body for eternity, and so we really should act like we are right now. Okay, a quick word on fasting before we finish out this segment, Uh, which really, fasting at this point is the main thing that Lent is associated with. And it's important to point out that in the law, in the Old Testament, there's only one prescribed day of fasting in the whole book, in the whole Old Testament, and that's called the Day of Atonement. But there are actually literally weeks and weeks of prescribed feast and festival days, so there's definitely an imbalance in the amount of feasting and fasting that's going on in the Old Testament. And it seems to indicate that feasting is either more important or at least as important as fasting. It certainly seems that feasting is certainly giving a lot more time in the Old Testament and the prescribed days to mark out. But I think Peter Larthart notices something very interesting. Is he, he notices that as the Scripture progresses fasting becomes more common. And he speculates and you know this is this is speculation so it's it's not something you necessarily need to burn for but he speculates that this could indicate that with maturity comes patience in waiting for the good things to come. So just as you wouldn't expect a nursing infant or a small child to fast but as they grow in maturity you expect them to grow in the discipline of waiting for good things. And in, in fasting really provides an opportunity for this. However, don't give up things simply for the sake of giving up things. Don't just give up bubblegum because you feel like you have to give something up. Give something up in order that you can be more useful. Uh, you can be a more useful servant for the cross of Christ. That's the whole point in doing it. And so simply giving up green beans for Lent, it's not going to really accomplish anything other than it gives you something to talk about. And so that really segues into the question of, will our family be celebrating Ash Wednesday by receiving an Ashen cross on our forehead? No, we won't. Um, well, I know that Catholics and Lutherans and anybody else that that celebrates Ash Wednesday by getting ashes sprinkled on their head or getting the the, the Ashen cross um written on their forehead. I know that they underst- that they know, and they've heard, the teachings of Christ on this um, and his prohibition on outward signs of fasting. I know that they know that. But I feel, at least at this point right now, that going and getting smudged with ashes so that the world knows I am now fasting is in direct opposition to the teaching of Christ. When he said, and I'm going to read the whole section here, it's from the Sermon on the Mount, he says, quote, this seems to indicate the greater feast that is to come and so the outward sign of an unwashed face seems to miss the point it, it seems to be like you're 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 saying i'm gloomy because i'm not eating and i'm disfigured my face is disfigured because i'm so penitent but really that misses the point the fact is that you're washing your face and you're anointing your head because you don't need these peanut butter sandwiches, as James Jordan said. He said, you don't need these peanut butter sandwiches because you're going to something better. You're going to the feast that that is coming. And so you're temporarily setting aside certain things for the better things that are coming. So while I won't be getting a visible outward sign on Ash Wednesday, I will be attempting to follow in secret some of the practical ideas that I listed above. I don't know if I'll do them all or how well I'll do them. uh, You know, that really does need to stay in secret. Um, But I actually also have another practical thing that I think you guys might find useful is, um, I'm going to include a link to this in the show notes. It's a wonderful little catechism uh, that Jeff Myers uh, wrote up. uh, And it's only maybe a dozen questions, but it's excellent to use during Lent for yourself or for your little ones too. And I think it can help, like all good catechism should, Structure your thinking on how to best glorify God as you structure your days. So, normally the biblical portion comes second after the practical, but the practical and the historical kind of squish themselves together into a longer segment, and so I'm putting the biblical passage now. And our biblical passage today is uh, from the Old Testament, again from the lectionary, uh, which we've been following every every time we have an episode. Uh, and this lectionary reading is in Joel, and I'm really not going to give uh, any uh, commentary on it, but just read it, and I think you'll see what an apropos passage it is for Ash Wednesday and the days of Lent to come. The gospel is seen throughout this passage. God is full of loving kindness towards those who humble themselves before him. So listen to the word of God here. Quote. This is from Joel chapter 2 verses 12 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babies. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord Weep before the porch and altar, let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations." That's the word of the Lord. So the promise of God is that those who humble themselves, He will lift up, but the proud He will actively oppose. During the season of Lent, may your attitude toward God be one of repentance and humility, so that we might be lifted up by Him. May we choose the seat at the foot of the table, so that we might be called up to the place of honor. In 1906, there was a young, energetic English Anglican by the name of Gilbert who penned a rousing hymn full of vitality and courage. It was a call to national repentance. The song is called, O God of Earth and Altar, and in parentheses were the words, Prayer for the Nation. It was written by none other than Gilbert Keith Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. It was written by him in his early 30s uh, while he was still an Anglican before he had converted to the Church of Rome. And in the spirit of the Lenten season, may this hymn written 114 years ago be just as appropriate for us 21st century Americans as when it was written. Let's listen to the words. I'll read them to you. O God of earth and altar, bow down and hear our cry. Our earthly rulers falter, our people drift and die. The walls of gold entomb us, the swords of scorn divide. Take not thy thunder from us, but take away our pride. From all that terror teaches, from lies of tongue and pen, from all the easy speeches that comfort cruel men, from sale and profanation of honor and the sword from sleep and from damnation deliver us good lord tie in a living tether the prince and priest and thrall bind all our lives together smite us and save us all in ire and exultation of flame with faith and free lift up a living nation a single sword to thee so this has got to be one of my favorite hymns of all time. And I, I like a lot of hymns, and so it it really is saying something. I love this hymn. And I love it for a lot of reasons, so let's just get into them. Verse one is striking to say the least, and it really sets the tone for what is a very striking and convicting hymn. There are no platitudes here. God is high in heaven and we are low on earth, and we are asking God to bow down, stoop to our level, and to hear our cry. Why are we crying to Him? Well, we're crying to Him because our rulers here on earth are a bunch of faltering failures. And we as a people, we're drifting about and dying. We are drifting and dying because our walls, made of gold and our prosperity, they're actually entombing us. Scorn has become so commonplace that it's merely used as a weapon to divide brother against brother. We're asking God not to spare his wrath or his thunder against us, but instead to take away the one thing that is causing all of this mess, our pride. During Lent, of course, we are reminded of the need to humble ourselves. Pride cannot be a part of a Christian's life we must constantly be seeking to root it out in all of its various manifestations now that's just verse 1 verse 2 is is even more visually intense we confess that fear or terror is our teacher instead of the fear of the lord driving us and teaching us the fear of everything but the fear of the lord is our teacher In buttressing fear as our teacher, there is lies, and the lies both written and spoken, both of tongue and of pen. This fear and these lies are what teaches us and informs our lives. Instead of the written word of God and the fear of the Lord informing us and and guiding our lives, it's fear and lies. And these speeches are nothing more than pandering platitudes to achieve political gain, whatever the order of the day might be, and all these easy speeches do is ease the conscience of men and women who have cruelty bound in their hearts. And we ask God in verse two for deliverance from many things. There are many things that we need deliverance from that we need to repent of and ask him to graciously deliver us from, from greed, a love of things that are profane, of violence. We need deliverance from violence and even the fear of man, which will sometimes t- hide and disguise as honor. Uh, we need deliverance from laziness and ultimately we need deliverance from the fires of hell, from damnation. We ask the Father, our good Father in heaven, to deliver us from these evils. In verse 3 shows somewhat the peculiarity of the writer's connection to England, to the monarchs, to the monarchy and the Church of England. The prince, of course, in here it says the prince, the priest, the thrall. The prince is the monarchy, the priest is the Church of England, and the thrall are those bound under the rule of the king. So I'd like to quote Peter Lightheart once more again. It's from an article he wrote uh, just a couple months ago on the website First Things. He says, quote, Few hymns offer so stark a portrait of the human condition. Lies, terror, cruelty disguised as niceness, tombs of gold, lazy indifference, pride. It's stark and very contemporary. Swords of scorn divide? Chesterton could have been watching CNN or Fox News or following Twitter. Chesterton doesn't permit a jot of sentimentality. No sweet hour of prayer in this hymn. His prayer is an anguished cry. He's not looking for a gently wafting spirit. Chesterton invokes divine thunder. He doesn't want God to hold back because he knows salvation lies on the far side of judgment. Smite us and save us all. Close quote. Yes, Chesterton knows a secret that the mayor Wynn discovered in the book, The Horse and His Boy. Now, if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, there it's wonderful. There's seven books. Um, I've read them many times. Uh, I've read them to my kids. And the Horse and His Boy is a wonderful, wonderful book. But in this book, that one of the one of the horses um, uh, is Winn, and she's a mare, and she's terrified just as Bree, the 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 um, the other horse in the book, just as Bree is. she's terrified of lions, and she's shaking all over. While Aslan, who's a lion and the ruler of Narnia, approaches her. And all of a sudden, she goes to him and she says this She says, You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. See, the best place to be is a willing participant under the providence of God, even if that means, like Job, the life as you know it will be consumed okay that concludes the episode for this week as usual I have the preceding hymn set to music that I recorded and in this recording um, I set the hymn to a new tune and one of the things I'm most excited about is that I was able to record this song with my oldest daughter Ava singing the vocals with me she is a dear girl and I, I hope you enjoy it. I certainly loved recording it with her. It was tons of fun. Um, I will be back on April 5th and then I'll have which is Palm Sunday and I'll have four almost simultaneous episodes for for Palm Sunday, which is Sunday, April 5th and then the following Thursday, which is known as Monday Thursday and then Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday itself. So I'll kind of have four episodes almost in a row. So until then, I hope you have a blessed Lent, and may these next 40 days grow you in maturity in ways only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. I hope you enjoy this new setting of O God of Earth and Altar, a prayer for the nation.
1: a single sword to Walls of gold entomb us, the swords of scorn divide. Take not thy thunder from us, but take away